27. So if you'll turn there, Genesis 26. We're going to begin reading in verse 34. And we're going to go down through just verse 4 of Genesis 27. So Genesis 26, verse 34. And we'll finish Genesis 26 and move into the first four verses of Genesis 27. Genesis 26, 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Be'eri the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And when Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Well, over the last three messages, our attention has focused particularly on Isaac and his life of faith during his uh, pilgrimage in the land of Canaan. But now the book of Genesis turns our attention back to the dynamics of the relationships within Isaac's family. We remember that Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, have two twin sons, Jacob and Esau. We remember that Esau was the firstborn. He, he came out first, though Jacob was clutching his heel. Deceitful Jacob took advantage of Esau's foolishness and persuaded Esau to sell his birthright. So even though Esau is the firstborn, Jacob is now legally entitled with the rights or to the rights of the firstborn child. And this probably has a lot to do with inheritance. All that was supposed to be Esau's, perhaps the double portion, is now Jacob's. Esau has a, a warrior personality, an adventurer type of personality. He's, he's more than a little rebellious. Jacob is following in the footsteps of his father. He prefers to stay among the tents, managing the family livestock business. We've already seen that Esau is reckless. Esau is a, a slave to his lusts. Jacob is cold and calculating willing to take advantage of others for his own gain. We have here two brothers, both of whom are sinners, though in different ways. Isaac prefers Esau because he enjoys the wild game that Esau goes out and, and kills for him and brings back to him. Rebekah prefers Jacob. And so in these few verses that we've read, I want us to see... Three errors, three sins, for I believe they are sins, that are committed in these verses that we can learn from. First, I want us to note Esau's polygamous relationship. Um, Esau was neither the first nor the last man to be polygamous. And, and there are many godly men in the Bible who were polygamous. And so, so what are we to think about this, this practice? 
Second, I want us to note that Esau married Hittite women. And that these Hittite women made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. And then finally, I want us to note Isaac's failure to bring real correction to his wicked son. So we're going to take these one at a time. We are going to spend most of our time on this this first point. I want you to notice that when Esau was 40 years old, he married two wives rather than one. He entered into a polygamous relationship. Um, If we want to be technical, it was a bigamous relationship because he has two wives, but later he will add another and become a true polygamist. Uh, The first man to marry more than one wife was this man named Lamech in Genesis 4, a wicked man, a, a murderer. Abraham appears to have had three wives. That is, we have Sarah, who is the the wife of prominence that we see in the life of Abraham. But we remember how Hagar was given to Abraham as a wife. And at the end of his account, we learn that there was this lady named Keturah, who was in some sense a wife to Abraham. But both Hagar and Keturah served more as something like concubines rather than as uh, legal wives. That's, That's no excuse. Having concubines is not appropriate behavior, so we're not giving an Abraham a a pass here. Esau now marries two women. He marries a third later. Jacob himself is going to wind up with two wives, Leah and Rachel. Polygamy appears to have been an accepted practice among most of the ancient peoples throughout most of the Old Testament Period. It was, it was normal. In our own culture, polygamy is still seen as something strange, something unusual, abnormal. Uh, there are federal laws that prohibit the practice of polygamy in the United States. However, Utah is known to have at least 40,000 people living in polygamous relationships And there are many different religious groups and communities scattered throughout our country in which polygamy is is practiced. It is very, very rare for someone to be convicted of polygamy because most polygamists only get a marriage license for their first marriage. And so legally they are monogamist, whereas in practice they are polygamist. They have wedding ceremonies and add on wives, but they don't get the legal marriage license, and so the government does not prosecute. We need to be talking about this subject, however, because it does appear that polygamy is on its way to eventually become a legal practice in our nation. I say that for a number of reasons, but perhaps the the main one is this, this recent law that was passed in the state of New York legalizing gay marriage. And in New York, this law declaring that that gay people have the right, they, they called marriage a basic human right, and determined that if two people, even if they're of the same sex, decide to marry, forbidding them to marry would be denying them that basic human right. Which raises the question, what if there are three people who want to be married? Is denying them the right to marry denying a basic human right? What if these three people claim to be in love with one another? Wouldn't denying this privilege be denying this basic human right? 
using the logic of the law that has been passed in New York, there's no way that a court could consistently forbid a polygamist marriage. Uh, underneath all of this is an unbelief in absolute truth. Right? Christians, we believe as Christians in absolute truth. We believe that God has determined what marriage is. Marriage is the covenantal union of one woman and one man. But if you don't believe in absolute truths, if, if you believe that, that things are relative, then you can believe that marriage might mean one thing for you and one thing for me. And who are you to press your narrow view of marriage onto me? With this attitude not only growing among regular Americans, but now also beginning to show up in our laws, there will not continue to be a legal basis for polygamy to be outlawed. If a man desiring to be polygamous sued for the right to marry in the state of New York right now, it is hard to see what sound legal basis any court would have for denying him that right. All of this is to say that the evidence seems to be that America is indeed returning towards a pagan understanding of life. And along with the new paganism comes a return to practices like polygamy. And it isn't just that a legal foundation for polygamy is now being built, but we also see the rise of interest in this practice. Four or five decades ago, homosexuality was still seen as a very strange and uncommon thing, but it began to garner people's attention. People began seeing homosexuals on their TV screens and hearing music by them on the radio, and after a while, what at first seemed so strange began to seem a little less strange. And then it began to become culturally accepted and now homosexual marriage is already a reality in some places and probably, unless God does something amazing, will inevitably be the law in all places in our culture. Well, similarly, just as homosexuality began as something that was strange and then people began to take interest in it and then it began to become culturally acceptable and now we see where... The last Gallup poll, I believe it was March of this year, says now that more than half of the American public believes that homosexuals have the right to marry. Right? So if that's how these things begin, what do we think now that we're beginning to see this act of polygamy suddenly take center stage on things like the television? Right? HBO had a, 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 a show called Big Love. just ended last year, ran for five seasons and it's centered around a fictional polygamous relationship. It's centered on a family in which the husband had multiple wives. TLC has a very popular reality show called Sister Wives that focuses on a real polygamous family in the United States, often depicts the family in a very positive light. One article I read said that this show was almost like an infomercial for polygamy. It is continuing to receive very strong ratings. The, the third season of it picks up next week. So this is something that's grabbing people's attention. What all this means is that times are changing. <laughs> and that the generation that, our, that we live in is not going to be the same as the generation that our children grow up in. Perhaps when our grandchildren are our age, if our Savior has not returned, this culture is going to look very, very different than it does now. 
if there is not revival, if there is not renewal, if there is not awakening that takes place, our culture is heading back into paganism and pagan practices will begin to appear again. They already are appearing again. And so as strange as it sounds, polygamy could be a very real problem for Christian churches in just a few decades. Doug Wilson says that he thinks polygamy may be a greater problem for local churches in just a few decades than homosexuality is. Because at least when it comes to homosexuality, most well-taught believers know that the teaching of Scripture on that subject is clear. Most believers know what they believe about homosexuality, and most true evangelical believers know that the Bible forbids it. But that's not so with polygamy. In fact, there's a lot of very conservative evangelical Christians who who aren't so sure that polygamy is such a bad thing. Wilson says, among more conservative Christians, the immediate problem will not be the toleration of homosexuality. The problem will arise when an evangelical church is approached for membership by a man with three wives. His three wives will be perfectly legal according to the new who's to say what marriage is laws. And he wants to know why he is being refused membership in the church. After all, Abraham had multiple wives. Would Abraham, the father of the faithful, be excluded from membership in your church? It would be kind of ironic, he muses, if Abraham could not be a member of this church when the church is nothing more but the society of the sons and daughters of Abraham. What do you think about this? If if we're right, and and in a few decades there are no laws prohibiting polygamy, and a polygamous family comes to us and and says, we are conservative, Bible-believing Christians, we believe that Abraham practiced polygamy, David practiced polygamy, surely it's okay, and we want to be members of your church. How, How would we respond to that? What would be our answer? What I want to do is take a few moments and let us see for ourselves why we are right to view polygamy as a sinful distortion of marriage. Why it is not a morally acceptable practice. Um, This is one of those once a decade kind of sermons. I hope I won't be having to preach on polygamy again for a long time, but here it is in the text. It's something that's happening and Perhaps it's worthy of of our attention for a few minutes on this Sunday night. So let's bring to our attention several scriptural arguments against the subject of polygamy. Number one, Adam and Eve's monogamous marriage was meant to be paradigmatic for all mankind. Big word, I know. Adam and Eve's monogamous marriage was meant to be paradigmatic for all mankind. We've we've used that word paradigmatic before. Something that is paradigmatic means that it sets the paradigm for the future. Adam and Eve's marriage was intended to set the paradigm for what future marriages should be. Adam and Eve's marriage was intended to be the model of what future marriages should be. How do we know this? The Bible tells us so. Look with me at Genesis 2 real quickly. Go back to Genesis 2. Beginning in verse 21, Genesis 2, verse 21. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice that last verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Why Why shall this happen? Because God instituted for this to happen by creating the paradigm of Adam's marriage to Eve. Thus, the pattern of Adam and Eve's marriage was meant to set the future of what all marriages should be. They were married in this way, therefore, a man will go and find a wife. Monogamy was the pattern set for marriage in the beginning. Now, point number two, Jesus reinforced this in Matthew 19. Jesus reinforced this in Matthew 19. So everybody turn to Matthew 19. Let's begin reading in verse 3. The issue here is divorce. Right? There's a question about divorce in Matthew 19, verse 3. Let's look at what happens. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. In other words, in this discussion of divorce... Jesus makes clear that a man is not to divorce his wife for any reason. And yet the Pharisees immediately remembered that in the Old Testament law, provisions were made for men wishing to divorce their wives. Jesus tells them that these laws were given because of their hardness of heart. That God had made these provisions because of their sin. But this is not the way it was in the beginning. Jesus then says, go back to the beginning. The pattern set forth by God was this one. The two shall become one flesh, what God has joined together. Let not men separate. And so we see here that Jesus sees Adam and Eve's marriage as paradigmatic for what marriage should be. What's more, we see the answer to the objection, but what about all that polygamy in the Old Testament? What about all that polygamy in the Old Testament? What about the laws that that give provisions for polygamy? What about those men of God who practiced polygamy? The answer is, because of man's hardness of heart, provisions for polygamous relationships were given in the Old Testament law, but the law never condoned polygamy, 
And in fact, the laws establish the laws that regulate the practice of polygamy in the Old Testament make clear that polygamy has negative consequences. Our cry should be the same as Jesus in this passage. Go back to the beginning. From the beginning it was not so. Go back to Adam and Eve. See there the pattern for marriage. God created one helper for Adam, not two helpers for Adam. Number three. The meaning of marriage indicates that it should be monogamous. One wife, monogamous one wife. The meaning of marriage indicates that it should be monogamous. What is the ultimate meaning of marriage? Why did God create this thing called marriage? What is the purpose of marriage? Well, contrary to the thinking of most in our culture, who think that marriage can be whatever we want it to be, Marriage has a God-given purpose that is higher than our own pleasures. Marriage is about God. Marriage is about preaching the gospel. Marriage is about declaring in living form the kind of relationship that Christ has with His people. The father gives a bride to the groom and the bride and groom become one. That's the story of world history. That's the meaning of marriage. To portray, again, we talk about this all the time, on micro scale, a truth that is true on macro scale. The story of redemption is being depicted every single time a couple gets married. Ephesians 5.32 is the key text. Talking about marriage, Paul says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Therefore, husbands, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Husbands, you are to lead your families the way Christ leads the church. You're to be the head of your families the way Christ is the head of the church. Wives, you are to show respect to your husbands the way the, the church is to show respect to Christ and to follow Him. Marriage is to be a picture of Christ in the church. Now, we're sinners, and in this world, that picture is going to be messed up. But the more we grow in holiness and the more we grow in integrity, the more our marriages will show the truth about Christ's relationship with His people. Friends, if marriage is about Christ in the church, how many wives does Christ have? Is there a bride of Christ besides the church? No, Jesus has one bride. There is one church for whom He died. There is one church for which, of which He is the head and for which He is coming again. Jesus does not have other brides and, and polygamous marriages therefore preach untruth about Jesus Christ. Polygamy is a distortion of the gospel message that marriages are to preach. In a sense, polygamy is blasphemy against the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four. Number four. 1 Timothy 3 teaches that church leaders are to be the husbands of one wife. 1 Timothy 3 teaches that church leaders are to be the husbands of one wife. And church leaders are to be the model for other Christians of what the Christian life should look for. So if church leaders are to be the husband of one wife, we should not expect it to be anything different for the members of the church. 
1 Timothy 3.2, speaking of the qualifications for the office of overseer, of pastor, says, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. 1 Timothy 3.12, speaking of deacons, says, Let deacons each be the husband of one wife. So no matter how you turn it, if you're going to be faithful to the Bible, a polygamous Christian could never be a qualified leader in a Christian church. Church leaders are to be those to whom other Christians look to see what true Christian living looks like. So if pastors and deacons are forbidden from being polygamous, should we expect that God desires anything different from other Christians? Number five, polygamy can lead to competition between wives. Polygamy can lead to competition between wives. I throw this one in there because we're soon to see it. Those of you who know the story of Jacob know we're coming to this, right? Um, We'll see it in a few weeks, so I won't see much about it now. But, But Jacob is going to end up with two wives. His heart was really only set on one wife, but the deceiver, Jacob, was deceived. And he ends up with two wives, And these two wives will be competing for Jacob's affection. We're going to witness a a war of childbearing as as each wife tries to be fruitful for her husband. And in many ways, it's a very strange passage of Scripture. It's a very sad passage of Scripture. It reminds us of how the dynamics of a a polygamous family bring bring with those dynamics extra temptations towards sin. Extra pressures that would lead people into into immorality. Argument number six. Deuteronomy 17.17 reflects the negative consequences of polygamy. Deuteronomy 17.17 reflects the negative consequences of polygamy. Here we read a law concerning the kings of Israel. And the law said... Speaking of kings, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Here was the folly of wise King Solomon. As wise as Solomon was, he could not resist this wicked impulse to have many, many women in his life, many, many wives. And just as the law had said, it affected his heart. It led him into disobedience. Paul says in Corinthians that marriage brings with it worldly troubles and worldly concerns. Paul teaches in Corinthians that that a single man or a single woman only needs to be concerned with with how to please the Lord, but a a married person must be concerned with, with how to please their spouse as well. So if being married to one spouse brings concerns into our lives that make following Christ more complicated, how much more so if you're married to two spouses or three spouses or four spouses? You're adding complication on top of complication on top of complication. It it multiplies those things that make it all the easier for our hearts to be turned to the things of this world, the things of this life, rather than the things of heaven. So a polygamist is playing dangerous games with his soul. 
finally, number seven. I'm going to turn again to, to Doug Wilson for this last argument against polygamy. He says, when a man is polygamous, it puts him in a position where he can father more children than he can be a father to. When a man is polygamous, it puts him in a position where he can father more children than he can be a father to. So even a mild polygamist like David could father many more children than he could possibly be a true father to. And this is very evident in the course of David's history with his children. One of David's sons, Amnon, raped one of his daughters, Tamar, and another one of his sons, Absalom, took his own vengeance by killing Amnon after David did nothing about it but get angry. The end result of all this was a civil war between David and Absalom, a war which David did not want to fight and reluctantly won. In other words, a father cannot be a godly father who trains up his children well and gives them the the personalized attention they need if he has scores and scores of them. A polygamist is able to have many, many children, many more than than would be natural for one husband and one wife. And, And rather than being a blessing, these children grow to become a curse because they are not able to be properly raised and trained up in the things of God. And so for all of these reasons, we are certain that we are right. When we say that polygamy is is not only a foolish practice or or a sinful distortion of marriage, it, it is wicked. Now, I hope you never have to worry about that. But we don't know what's coming in this culture of ours. And so let's make sure that we are grounded and firmly rooted on the issue Because I think there are some signs that this looming threat to marriage is on the horizon and that it could possibly do more damage to the church's teaching on marriage than than homosexuality has. Now, let me just very quickly and very lightly touch on the other two points that I wanted to bring your attention to in these two verses. The, The first sin that we saw was Esau's marriage of two wives. But the second is this. I want you to see that Esau married outside the family, that Esau married outside the family, namely he married two Hittite women. Remember how Abraham had made his servant swear that Isaac's wife would not come from the Canaanites. Abraham had made his servant give a solemn oath that he would not take a wife for Isaac from the pagan people of that land. Remember how God would later instruct Israel not to intermarry with the pagans who worship idols. God told Israel that intermarrying with such spouses would ultimately turn His people's hearts away from Him to the worship of other gods. Esau appears to be marrying women whom we can assume do not worship his God. Indeed, this could be seen as an act of rebellion on Esau's part against his God. We as Christians need to be reminded that God has instructed us to marry within the family. That is, we're to marry other believers. We're not to become one flesh with someone who is still living in sin, refusing to submit to our Lord. Marrying an unbeliever brings many, many dangers to our souls and and may ultimately lead us away from Christ. 
What's more, shouldn't we want a spouse who can encourage us? Don't we want a spouse who can encourage our faith and point us more towards Christ and stir us up to greater love towards Christ? Can we expect that to happen if we have an unbeliever as a spouse? Now, God is very merciful. Sometimes a Christian marries someone thinking that he or she is, is a Christian, only to later realize that, that he or she wasn't. And sometimes a Christian just sins, drops the ball in this matter. Well, God can be very merciful in those situations. And sometimes even the spouse is converted. But that's the exception, not the rule. And much help is needed when you have a believer unequally yoked to an unbeliever. As we've seen before, there are so many difficulties that come from such a relationship. And probably the one that strikes me the most is that a Christian spouse has to live each day with the knowledge that, at least as far as they can tell, their their unbelieving spouse is on their way to hell. And they must live with that with that sad knowledge day in and day out. And that's a, that's a terrible, that's a, that's a very grievous thing to have to live with every day. It's the kind of thing that ought to put those spouses much on their knees, crying out to God for help. Save my husband, save my wife. But God instructs us to marry inside the Christian family. And parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts, if, if you care about the young people in your family, you need to work hard to insist that they only court believers or date believers who will, who will be a benefit to their souls and, and not a hindrance to them. Now Esau's actions may very well have been an act of rebellion against his God, but they may also have very well been an act of rebellion towards his parents. Uh, we're told here that these two women made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. This was not the kind of marriage, marriages, that they wanted for their son. Right? This was not a, these were not marriages in which, in which they had given their blessings. Esau may very well have been acting out of his own foolish lust, as, as we've already seen him do in, in a previous passage. Whatever the case, his actions brought very real misery to his parents. In fact, later we're going to see Rebecca say to her husband Isaac about her daughters-in-law, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me now? This was something that really struck deep in the heart of Rebecca. It hurt her deeply that her son would marry these kinds of women. So what we should learn from all of this, and it's a truth that's taught even more clearly in other places, is that believers ought to marry within the family. And then finally, we can't help but note that despite Esau's current record of foolish decision after foolish decision, wicked act after wicked act, his father still seems to favor him. His father still seems desirous to bless him. Rather than bringing a rod of correction to his son, we have no record of any discipline on Isaac's part. Rather, he seems to turn a blind eye towards the wickedness of his son. 
Isaac is now an old man and he's, he's going physically blind, but, but there seems to be this other blindness going on where, where he does not see the errors of, of his son or he at least refuses to acknowledge them and, and seems now like he's ready to, to bless his son. So here is a son with no self-control, a son with a heart of rebellion, a son with folly in his heart, and, and we see no action on Isaac's part to bring any change. Is this true of us? Are we blind towards our children? Do we seek to give them blessing when we should be seeking to give them correction or discipline? I remember growing up, um, there was a particular family that we knew in which uh, the young man was constantly in trouble, constantly doing some very, very wicked things, and yet his parents never seemed willing to own up to the fact that their son was such a mess. They never seemed willing. In their eyes, he could do no wrong. Radical action needed to be taken in the life of this son, and his parents seemed unwilling to even admit that their son was, was in trouble. This young man's mother, in particular, was like this and never could seem to be brought to believe that, that her son would do those things. And parents, I think this is something that we're all susceptible to, that we can become blinded by our love for our children, that when love would demand a rod of correction, we only want to continue giving blessing. Um, it is not love for us to be blind to the sins of our children, and it is not love for us to bless them when what they need is stern reproof and correction. God loves us by dealing with our sins, not by pretending that our sins aren't there. In fact, God is loving us right now by ensuring that all of our wickedness is being removed. We will stand spotless before Him on the last day. God loves us even by bringing hard things into our lives. God loves us by bringing, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's the death of a loved one, maybe it's a terrible trial, but God brings these hard things into our lives to bring real correction to us, to rid pride and selfishness out of our souls. God loves us by bringing the rod of correction in all kinds of forms. This was the pattern that Isaac should have followed. But we see no evidence that Isaac did. Will we? Here is Isaac about to pass on to Esau his blessing. God had promised to make this family into a great and prosperous nation. This blessing that God was going to make them into a great and prosperous nation was passed down from Abraham to Isaac. And now Isaac is about to give this blessing of great prosperity, of, of this great nation that was going to come. He's about to hand it over to this wicked son. Now admittedly, at the moment, Jacob's not a whole lot better. But we've heard the prophecy. We know this can't happen. Because we've already heard the word of God. He said the older will serve the younger. And so something's going to happen. We'll, we'll see what it is in a couple of weeks or you probably already know the story. But for now, let us learn what our Savior is teaching us. Jesus is teaching us from His word in this short passage, these lessons. We need to know that polygamy is a distortion of, of real marriage and we need to be ready to stand against it if we need to. 
We need to be reminded that Christians are to marry within the family. And we need to be careful not to be blind towards the sins of our children, nor to fail to respond with the appropriate kind of love, even if that means stern reproof or correction. We need God's help, do we not? We need to look to Christ and ask Him for wisdom and guidance and discernment as we seek to live out this Christian life. So let's pray.